Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. and welcome to another podcast from Disruptive HR, where we talk to people who are in the HR profession or around the HR profession and who are just doing things differently. And today I am absolutely delighted to welcome Selena Milsam from Ericsson. And your role there is VP and Head of Talent Management. Is that right? Global Head of Talent Management. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Great to see you as well. And you're talking to us from Stockholm. I am Stockholm, Sweden, so the capital. But how is uh, how's lockdown been for you? Well, um, I think for all of us, it's been challenging um, to really, I think, balance this element of being alone and loneliness, and balancing this new way of of working, not just you know, transitioning to working from home or working remotely, but figuring out how to, how to navigate and create opportunities that didn't exist when we were more regularly going to the office. Ericsson has always had a rather flexible work um, way of working perspective. So I certainly had a lot of flexibility before. But now my flexibility is less in terms of going to the office. We still have our offices closed and are prioritizing health and safety, of course. But I, I've seen uh, a lot of opportunities. And of course, like everyone else, it's been tough as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so tell us a little bit about your your role and how long have you been with Ericsson? I will be with uh, Ericsson, it'll be 10 years in September, um, but it feels like maybe 18 months given all the change and evolution and exciting things we've been working on. So it's hard to believe it's been 10 years. Um, yes, you, you gave my title. I usually like to introduce myself as a people philanthropist, trying to improve the lives of others, just a little bit even uh, on a daily basis. So uh, I like to say I, I have the sunny side of HR and get to work with leaders, leadership development, strategic uh, talent planning, succession management, engagement, how we measure it, how we work with it, young talent, diversity and inclusion, culture, org change, all those great things that really, um, uh, I think from the people side, are very generative and contribute to us delivering on strategic ambitions and organizations. The sunny side of HR, I like that, I shall use that. Now, um, so what I wanted to talk to you about, Felina, is your approach to transformation. And we're gonna start with a bit of a story because I think, you know, 2016 to 2019 was a fairly kind of dark period, wasn't it? So just give us a little bit of an overview of that, of that period and what was going on for Ericsson and how you decided to approach transformation differently, because that's what excites me is that, is that you know, we've all done transformation programs that haven't really led very, you know, very far and haven't delivered what we wanted, but you've approached it differently. So start with your 20, 
16 to 19 story and then and then talk to us about how you approach transformation differently yeah between 2016 or starting in 2016 we started to go through some pretty significant changes in the organization and had some pretty significant reputational challenges from the marketplace so both um, from the media uh, given our business results given some of our leadership changes in the organization and um, some disruptions to the general marketplace the information communications technology marketplace in general so some real challenges and which resulted, unfortunately, in us having to do a series of restructuring in the organization, as well as unfortunately um, saying goodbye to over 25,000 of our colleagues and friends uh, globally, or approximately 100,000 employees now. So it was a big uh, change, a real impact to our engagement of our employees. So we'd always had scores that were really high and we saw them actually really plummet. And then unfortunately, we ended up in a situation where we had an acting CEO, an acting CFO, and an acting CHRO. Oh, so a lot yeah. of changes. It's just awful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so with that geopolitical landscape um, being very tough as well, the competition being tough, and then internal, it was um, one of those real burning platforms you hear about in terms of change. And I think we approached it both from a financial perspective, getting us um, healthier from a financial perspective, doing that through significant structural changes to the organization and refocusing of our strategic ambitions. And then finally um, comes the culture piece, uh, an important element if you're actually going to create an organization that's sustainable for the long run. So tell us what was different about this approach to transformation and, and maybe kind of a bit about your thinking about why it had to be different. Mm. So I think, you know, um, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet and we don't know like the absolute right way to think, do things. But what we knew was that what we had done in the past wasn't gonna get us to where we needed to be in the future. So we started with some very fundamentally simple questions of why do we do what we do? And why do we do what we do in the way that we do it? And that was specifically around those critical business processes and ways of working. And what we knew from um, a lot of experience with change is that people didn't necessarily need to agree with the changes that were happening, but they needed to understand what informed those decisions. So why were we doing things? What did we believe in? What do we stand for? What do we do? What do we not stand for if we were going to make these changes? So we started um, doing some work with the executive team around defining just those, our philosophies, what it is we believed in as an organization. And I don't mean like, um, you know, absolute truths, capital T, but I meant <laughs> truths for us at yeah. this juncture in time around, well, what do we believe about leadership? What do we believe around engagement? How does it happen? How do you develop and nurture it? What's the best way to measure it? And we did that around diversity and inclusion, around uh, rewards and recognition, around employee engagement, around um, those like key areas that influence um, some of the you know most important people processes that you we know, have. You know, I think this point about actually taking a step back and 
really digging deep into what you believe in it feels counterintuitive when you're in the depths mm. but actually that will be the thing that sustains you and and it amazes me how many leadership teams have never had a conversation about what do we believe motivates our people do we believe that people want money above all everything yeah, else you know exactly. do we trust our people to come to work to do a decent job you know fundamental beliefs that that actually you know we infer them by the way that we've typically done things but actually that step back and and how did your leaders respond to that because you know some of them might have been going you know dear God, Selena, we've actually just got to get on and do stuff. And yeah. here you are getting us to talk about what we believe in. What reaction did you get to that? Yeah. So we definitely did get that reaction of like, oh, if you haven't noticed, there's sort of like a huge storm going on. But the conversation we had next was around, well, if we make it through this, and if we all agree and believe that we will make it through this and be a more resilient organization, we will need to pivot on many of these people processes and ways of working. And to do all that legwork and to really think about the design and think about the congruence with what we believe and how we actually implement things, we couldn't wait to do that when we have had um, gotten ourselves in a better financial position. We knew that we needed to do that as quickly as possible because there is quite a lot of work to do that understanding. Yeah. We also had um, a few um, held beliefs around how this would work in a better way. One of them was around co-creation. So historically, we have, we have a center of excellence like many organizations do. We design and create these processes and then we cascade them in the organization. Ericsson is 100,000 people strong, incredibly smart, kind people where things were going really great in different pockets. And we said, let's do a co-creation instead. So we really went to the organization and asked them, you know, what are the practices that you are doing that creates great um, performance in your organization? So not just about performance management, no. but who is setting great goals? Who's creating a clear ambition and a translation of the strategy from the global level to the unit, to the team, to the individual? Where are we having great um, development conversations in the organization? And then using that to create a global process that we found more generative and more aligned with who we were as an organization and our values in general. So that co-creation was a key one. And what were the conclusions that you reached about ways of working, beliefs that you had that you used to kind of sustain you through the, the chain? Because you mentioned to me about, was it five principles or five yeah. priorities, or I can't remember the terminology mm -hmm. that you used, but you had kind of five principles, I think it was, that you wanted yeah. to, to, to take, use to take you forward. So you mentioned this bit about, you know, what were people saying? And what they were saying was like, okay, this is all great, um, but this is tough stuff. You know, we're going through a huge change. Um, the, the landscape, as I mentioned before, of our comp competition, really tough. And what we realized was that 
this is difficult stuff for leaders. You know, we're asking them to be like superhuman. Again, I talked about that translation of the strategy. We want them to be great coaches. They need to be mentors. They need to be able to give great career advice. We all know if you have more than two people on a team, there's some type of personal transition happening, whether they're getting married or having a baby or getting divorced or managing illness for themselves or a loved one or, you know, all that stuff that makes us human that is hard to separate. And we said, wait a minute, we need to support our leaders. We're, we're having high expectations of them really driving the organization. So how do we support them? And we identified five focus areas, which we really believe are the practices that are necessary for us to implement and execute on our strategy and to live our purpose and our vision and values. And those five um, focus areas, we also did from co-creation, all those interviews we had learned about the process development. And so when we launched them, they really resonated in the organization. And what we said is, you know, for this first phase, we need to help our leaders to significantly increase their willingness and ability and we were very intentional about the willingness and ability, because that's not only around your skill, but it's around mindset, which we know is so important. So it was around so spot on, you know, I, I think, you know, we often come across you know, HR teams who have devised a, a leadership competency framework and they've put huge amounts of effort into identifying what the skills are. And of course, it all makes perfect sense in terms of an intellectual grasp of what's needed. Yeah. But rarely do we ask ourselves, why would leaders want to change their behavior? Yeah. Yeah. Why would, you know, if I'm a leader, I've been doing it this way for 10 years quite successfully. Why would I want to change my habits, my behaviors and, and embrace these new skills? So I think this deliberate willingness, I think, is, is, is absolutely vital. How did you, so just talk to me about these, these five focus areas, these practices. Mm -hmm. Are you able yep. to kind of share those with us? Yeah. So the first one is around fact-based, courageous decision-making. So we're a very networked organization where relationships are very important, and that's helpful. But when we're talking about succession or we're talking about making decisions, how do we really get enough data, enough facts, though we're being mindful, we're doing our best to eliminate the inherent bias that comes into some of these critical decisions, combined with this courageousness, so fact-based, courageous decisions, because sometimes we need to know we have enough information and we just have to move and then pivot if we get new information. Quite often I'll say to uh, HR uh, people who are kind of, fed up that people don't see you know, leadership teams don't seem to want to change and, um, and and they keep asking for more and more information and I think we have to differentiate between when is that a critical piece of data that's missing that is preventing us from making a decision and actually what is a delaying tactic just keep putting it into the long grass and I can keep you know not making decisions while I ask for more and more analysis to be done. So exactly. that tension between when is enough data enough and actually when do we need just to be brave, I think is spot on. Yeah, which is why the next focus area is so, you know, they're, they're in partnership, which is execute speedily. So an organization of 100,000 employees, we've been around for over 145 years. You know, we have some stuff in the walls and it's a machinery. How do we um, 
act in a more agile way. And I don't mean agile, capital A, I mean agility, learning agility, moving quickly and combined with that fact-based courageous decision-making. So we execute and deliver to our customers, you know, before they're expecting, which then leads to the third one, which is cooperation and collaboration. So we've all been talking about how do you work across silos? How do you get people to work together? How do we understand what is the connect collective knowledge of the organization? I mean, when organizations get so big and so matrix, it's like, okay, how do you know who to get information from? So the power actually to work together, to cooperate, to collaborate, and how that also, again, leads to our commitment to inclusion and diversity, because we know that leads to greater innovation, which is what we're founded on and what has enabled us to survive for so long. So tell me about the, the, the other two, because there's one in particular that I want to, to explore with you about the speak up. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned inclusion and, of course, um, an important part of organizations that we know is um, how do you figure out to create that fertile ground where employees can speak truth to power? How do we create that psychological safety where people can um, speak what's not being spoken? And that is across the board. So we talk about it very much around the unpopular comment or, you know, challenging in a constructive way. But for us, we also meant around how do you celebrate wins when perhaps that's not the culture and the natural thing to do. So just, again, creating that psychological social safety for people to speak up, to talk about what's really happening in service of us being better together. And one of the things I talk about a lot in that, which is easily said, but not actually easily executed, and even for me, is this assuming positive intention. Yeah. So if we assume positive intention, how are we listening to that, you know, that comment that perhaps isn't being said or or that challenge that we weren't expecting. If I believe that you are truly saying that in service of helping me, supporting us, helping us to be better, how do I receive that? And how do I then continue to create that speak up environment? And you kind of just use that um, reframing technique, didn't you, around Mm -hmm. instead of kind of, is it so just traditional Q&A, you reframed it as speak up. Can you just talk to us about that? Because I, I love these kind of small behavioral nudges that we mm. can create. And I don't think we use them often enough. And something as simple as changing the language to help people reframe how they behave. Yeah, and we, we talk about those as micro behaviors. Yeah. And it's been such a big difference. So one, um, one thing that's really been adopted very widely across Ericsson now is instead of, you know, whether it's a big meeting or a small meeting, you have sort of, okay, now it's Q&A time. Yeah. We don't have Q&A time. We have speak up time. Because we really just talked about this Q&A. It's like, okay, you have a question. Were you not listening? And, <laughs> and, that, and that there's an expectation that there's this Uber answer that's going to come and solve all the problems. So it was a very, you know, a, a small, nuanced micro behavior change, which now in all of our large meetings, in most of the small meetings I'm in, instead of a slide being a QA, it's <laughs> speak up. Yeah. A yeah. real invitation. It's it's, it's a small. And has it made a difference? I, it, I think it's made a huge difference. I can think of a few meetings, and now 
I'd love to pin it to this directly. I mean, I think it's like this perfect storm of the pandemic, et cetera. But I, I, I see significant increase in the number of chats coming up uh, when it's a virtual meeting or people even talking. And, or I would say, I mean, if I speak for myself, the intentionality I have in meetings of really saying, wow, uh, you know, John hasn't been speaking up as much in this meeting. Maybe I just check in with him and see yeah. if there's something going on. Or, you know, maybe he's just thinking or processing, but let me intentionally check in. Um, and I see that as a practice of many of my colleagues as well. And then the final practice. Yeah. And that's, um, I, I always say it last, but I guess it's probably the most important and been a real uh, enabler for particularly the, this last year with the pandemic. And that is um, empathy and humanness, demonstrating empathy and humanness on a daily basis. You know, I talked about this expectation for leaders uh, and the reality is, is what we acknowledged was that actually at the end of the day, it's still people talking to people, whether you're a customer or a provider or a partner or a colleague, it's, you know, we talk about this, the soft stuff. Yeah. In my experience, there's nothing soft about it. It's hard, that interpersonal communication, really genuinely listening and thinking with empathy and humanness and using that as a filter as we made decisions. We had launched these five focus areas in the autumn of 2019. And I have to say, um, sometimes you get a little lucky because I truly believe they really enabled us to pivot, to move quickly, to make good decisions when the pandemic hit. And really those conversations had already started around well-being and taking care of our employees. So our engagement didn't drop at all. People are super appreciative of what the organization has done. There's a sense of community and belonging. That's not to say we don't have a lot of work to do. And um, I take very seriously the, the mental health challenges that we're all facing mm -hmm. and the well-being from a particularly physical and mental social perspective. Um, but I think it's really enabled us to actually then ironically have those you know, more open speak up conversations around what has historically been, you know, somewhat of a taboo conversation. I mean, mental health has always been a taboo. And I think it has enabled us to have those conversations in a more meaningfully, meaningful and less, um, I guess, um, dramatic way, you know, really just having a yeah. conversation. So I imagine that there is a um, some, some support, some interventions for leaders to um, not just understand what these practice areas are, but actually to embrace them behaviorally and put them literally into practice. So has that changed over the last, you know, two, two years since you launched them? How are you how are you supporting leaders with them? Mm. Well, you know, you asked around how we did things differently or not the same. So um, given that belief that I mentioned around this is like people to people having meaningful conversations. You know, so there, the immediate thing is like, oh, let's do a leadership development program. Let, yeah. How do we like give them the skills? How do we, I mean, I worked in consulting for 10 years. So, you know, I love a good matrix or two by two. And, <laughs> you know, this is the model. And these are the words we're going to use. And we said, we don't want to do that. What people need is time to actually practice. Practice having meaningful conversations. Practice listening to you. You listening to me us being honest, open, transparent, 
demonstrating humanness and empathy, and really that, that piece around assuming positive intention. So before the pandemic hit out, we um, developed a two and a half day workshop where we had probably about 10 slides max during that time. <laughs> um, we got together groups of 100 because we wanted to do it with um, scale and speed. And we had in different constellations of, you know, pairs, threesomes, small groups, big table groups, group of 100 having meaningful conversations together, practicing having meaningful conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that I give so much credit to our executive team who really took a chance saying, okay, well, how do we know this will work? And we really said, well, we don't know it will work, but it has worked so amazingly. We were able then to pivot to virtual, which of course um, there was some concern about that. And there was discussion, oh, maybe we we put this on pause, but you can't have that really meaningful conversation virtually. And I have to say, that's one of the most um, biggest learnings I've had. You know, I, ha I held a belief around, yeah, but really, if you want to build trust and intimacy, you can't do that virtually. I think this pandemic has proven me wrong. I think yeah. that the relationships that I've developed, I think us transitioning to a virtual version of this um, of course, it's not exactly the same, sure. but the ability for people to trust each other and create that intimacy and create those meaningful conversations we've seen and we've gotten all of our leaders through and we're cascading it throughout the organization. Of course, we're complementing that with other, um, you know, local interventions, leaders bringing this to their teams and actually working on it. We just finished last week. Um, we have a, a platform that we use with a partner um, where we have a 72 hour jam. So it's a live yeah. virtual chatting discussion where all of the executive team was on there at different points of the time. We throw out, you know, meaningful, deep questions around, you know, purpose, around values, around execution of our strategy, around how we're working together. And it's this amazing, you know, online discussion where anywhere from, you know, our software developers in India to our delivery team to, you know, our commercial teams on the front line selling um, our products and software and uh, hardware to, to uh, customers across the organization. So. Belina, that's just fantastic. It's so, I mentioned when we had our kind of briefing call for this, I get so excited when you meet HR directors who are embracing all of the stuff that we've been banging on about for, for you know, about six years about, you know, treating people as adults, understanding them as if they were consumers but primarily making sure that HR is, is about being the human experts, not the process expert, the human expert. And, and it strikes me that that's what you've brought to Ericsson. I'm sure there are others in your team as well. And, oh, absolutely. But, you know, and you, you know, credit to your exec team for being open to it. But, but HR within, within Ericsson is clearly basing its advice and its, its focus is all around human beings, what motivates them, what, what, what might encourage them to change their behavior. What are they, how do they feel valued? How do they feel motivated? And, and I don't think there's enough of that in, in the wider HR community. So um, thank you so much for sharing that with us today. 
And what's next? What's next for the for the program or what's next for HR? You know, post lockdown, post pandemic, hopefully. What is what are your priorities? What are you looking forward to, to getting to grips with next? Well, I think um, I'll take a pause and say in terms of us um, doing that work. And, and I think the first step was if I if I look back is that we built a team that has collectively delivered all of this together. So definitely not a, a lone wolf on this. And one of the things premises of ways of working was that actually we were quite committed to demonstrating those five focus areas and how we were working together which I think enables me to answer your question in a much more meaningful way is because we built that team and we're really committed to demonstrating what we're preaching, we are able to be like really thinking about and challenging ourselves around the next thing. And even though we've designed and developed all these new processes and ways of working, we're not like so holding them so tight we're constantly continuing to ask ourselves the question why we're doing what we're doing why we're doing what we're doing in the way that we're doing so like the huge opportunity of future work so that's an exciting piece of work that we're deep into right now what does it really mean in the future post-pandemic which i'm not sure there will be a post-pandemic no no it's but there'll be a a new reality yeah And so how do we maximize the opportunities that we've actually seen? And one thing I'm really intrigued by, uh, have been for a while, but now it's really exciting, is how we use technology to drive change with scale and speed. How do we use the people analytics? How do we use data? What are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves in organization? Mm -hmm. I think we have so much data in organizations. How are we using it? What are the correlations that we need to make to help us make better business decisions? And that's uh, some of the things that we're really excited about right now. Oh, Lena, I could talk to you for hours. When this is, uh, when we're able to travel, I am coming over to Stockholm and we'll take you out for lunch. We can sit there and I can just listen to you for a bit longer. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to to share your experiences with us. I think that's just been that's been so enlightening and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Selena. Yeah, great to talk with you. Take care. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www.disruptivehr.club.